Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Water? Mm. Man, I got the best water city of Chicago can have. <laughs> love that water. Love that chicken from Popeye's. All right, here we go. I do love chicken from Popeye's. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, May 18th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back 33rd Ward Alderwoman and rising star in the Chicago political scene, Rosanna Rodriguez. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. It's all there. And if you want to find Ben Jarofsky, just hit up ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chicago's Ric Flair Thursday, and here's why. All right. I double-checked this with Dr. D, my dear friend, my old uh, partner in crime uh, about wrestling. Uh, Ric Flair is the wrestler that people love to hate. Plays the bad boy. He's the evil man in wrestling, all right? And then wrestling is set up that way. There's a good guy and there's a bad guy. Everybody loves the good guy. Everybody hates the bad guy. And now I'm going to transition to what I really want to talk about. The bad guy of Chicago politics right now is my dear friend, the show's dear friend, Saka Body. What up, Sacco? He's been on the show many times. He's coming on in a couple weeks. He's a lefty who's not afraid to say he's a lefty. <laughs> and economist, a really smart guy when it comes to numbers and just how the world works. And uh, he works with a group called the Action Center on Race and Economy and the People's Unity Platform. Anyway, he released a report, or they released a report. I think it was yesterday, I want to say. And it was dutifully covered in the press and the media. And immediately denounced by absolutely everyone. <laughs> he is Ric Flair, ladies and gentlemen. And in his report, they talk about raising revenue. Everybody needs to figure out how we're going to raise money. Government costs money. Man, this is the reality, ladies and gentlemen. When they pave the streets, it costs money. When they patrol the streets, it costs money. When they send firefighters out to put out the fires, it costs money. When they when you send your children to school, it costs money. When you hand out money, when you hand out those big handouts. To developers, you know, to build upscale communities and already upscale communities, that costs money. It all costs money, ladies and gentlemen. Pensions cost money. Wait, you think it's free? You think it's just going to, like, there's magic seeds that the mayor, the all-powerful mayor, I think Chicagoans actually did believe that when Mayor Daly was the mayor. He's the mayor. He knows how to run a city, Ben. How many times did I hear that? <laughs> Meanwhile, he was, like, selling absolutely everything that wasn't nailed down to raise the money for to pay for it. Oh, Skyway, I'll sell it. Oh, parking meters, I'll sell it. Oh, parking garages, I'll sell it. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, I don't know what she did with NASCAR. I don't know if that's going to raise any money for anything, but they kind of first presented it like it was going to raise money somehow or other. They're always trying to present stuff like where they're going to waste your money, that it's going to like 
create money? The Bears. My distinguished guest is waiting. This is before she uh, was a politician. Chicago gave the Bears so much money to redo Soldier Field. Oh, it's going to bring in tourists. They're going to be pouring in from Iowa to watch the Bears. Man, there's no Bears fans <laughs> in Iowa. <laughs> Dumb Chicagoans were like, oh, says it here in the Tribune. It must be true. They're coming in from Iowa to watch the Bears. All it does is cost us money. And guess what? The Bears are about to leave. We're still paying off that stadium. <laughs> They're about ready to go to Arlington Heights. They hope those suckers and saps give them some money. That's not my problem, man. I like you want to get the Bears money, that's your issue. But anyway, so Sakob, who's a very thoughtful man, is trying to think of new ways to come up with money, to pay all the bills and the obligations. And essentially his report, and we'll get into the taper deeper dive when he comes on the show, is soak the rich. The richer you are, the more you have to pay. Now, there's some aspects of his plan that I have my issues with because I don't think all the people that they're soaking are rich. So they're talking about like people who make about $100,000 a year, you know, got to pay taxes on $100,000. A lot of people I know. Now, it's true. I've never made $100,000 a year. Okay, it's true. I've never made it. Reader, writers, we don't make a lot of money. But, you know, teachers like, I don't know, do librarians make that much? Teachers, cops, firefighters, I mean, like basic middle class jobs make $100,000 a year. I don't know about that one, Saka. We'll discuss it. But the point is new ways of thinking of raising money to pay the obligations instead of the same old, same old of fees and fines and property taxes and selling off parking meters. We can't even sell off the parking meters anymore. We're now losing money on that deal, ladies and gentlemen. So what happens when he comes up with these new ideas? Everybody denounces it, including Mayor Brandon. Mayor Brandon's people, I should say, Jason Lee, good, not a good friend of the show. Man, everybody comes on the Ben Jarofsky show. He goes, we put out a plan, this is Jason Lee, that we had to uh, argue about internally 100 different times. It was about $800 million. This is $12 billion, so it has nothing to do with what we're trying to do. In other words, don't blame Sockup on us. That's Ric Flair. We're Hulk Hogan. Everybody loves Brandon Johnson. He's really... An affable human being. He gets along. He listens well. I've known him for a long time. He laughs. He can tell jokes. He can be. He can disagree without being disagreeable. And this is working out perfectly for him. Because Sockham's the bad guy putting out that proposal. That mean, evil lefty. Oh, the lefty. Meanwhile, they drag out Jack Lavin in the same article in the Sun-Times from the Chamber of Commerce. And he denounces the plan, of course that evil sock up and he points out that it doesn't come from brandon that works perfectly for brandon sock up's the mean guy brandon's the good guy i know what this is all about for years and years and years my partner in crime was mick dumpke everybody liked mick people in the Rahm Emanuel administration would tell me why can't you be more like mick <laughs> so i know what it's like sock up everybody likes brandon everybody's gonna be mad at you but you're playing a very important role in my humble opinion you're playing an absolutely important role. You're forcing the city to at least consider the reality of the way we finance government, how regressive it is, and trying to think of new ways to finance it. Now, in its infinite idiocy, the people of Illinois voted down the fair tax. Most politicians in the city of Chicago were absolutely worthless in that fight. That would have raised the income tax on the wealthiest people to help pay our bills. The wealthiest people spent how many millions of dollars 
to bamboozle you voters into thinking it was a bad idea to raise taxes on them so that you could lower taxes on yourself. Some of the strongest anti-fair tax votes came from areas on the northwest and southwest sides of Chicago where there are the most retirees whose pensions are directly linked to a fair tax. They voted no. So this is a, a struggle, a constant struggle. And by the way, I just want to point something out. We have this division uh, in on the left, if you will. Like Brandon is taking more of a centrist view on this. Sakab is the lefty on this one. All right, we have more of a division on the left. Where's the division on the right on anything? MAGA man, they control the Republican. They just line up and follow the orders. I'm trying to figure out what's the difference between Trump and DeSantis on anything. I guess Trump is trying at this point to position himself more of a supporter of a woman's right to choose. As insane as it. at the same time, he's bragging about how he put those three judges on the Supreme Court who destroyed Roe. He's saying, well, Ron DeSantis's abortion policies in Florida are harsh. So I guess that's about as close as you come in the Republican Party, a division of labor, a division of thought, I should say. So anyway, I uh, applaud Sakab. He's putting ideas out there. I think it improves the public discourse to have the left chiming in. And if nothing else, it makes it easier for Brandon Johnson to deal with the Chamber of Commerce types and the Republic. You'll, by the way, Mayor Johnson, you will never get, <laughs> you will never get some of those forces to ever concede that you have a good idea. They are against you from day one and they'll do everything they can to defeat you. I am just telling you that. I'm just reading those Tribune editorials, man. They're just revving up. But, Overall, I do believe it helps Brandon Johnson to have an active left that doesn't just fall in line with him. It comes up with its own ideas and unique proposals, which I think warrant discussion. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest who has sat through patiently while I ranted and railed there. The great alderwoman from the 33rd Ward on the northwest side of Chicago, Rosanna Rodriguez. Welcome back, Rosanna. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you heard me rant and rave. Do you have any thoughts you want to add to that conversation before we move on? I want to give props to Sackett <laughs> um, because that is our job as the left. We have to continue to push for what we want to see. That is how we get progress. That is how we got Brandon. That is how we moved from um, more conservative, more right-wing oriented administrations that of course were 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 selling themselves as as progressives. They, we know that they weren't. Um, but that is that is what that is what we have to continue to do in order to get progress. We have to push um, and we have to bring uh, forward um, proposals and and I'm so glad that Sakib is doing that and that uh, the Unity platform is doing that um, because we are going to continue um, demanding the most because we deserve the most. You know, I, um, I've i thought about all the conversations we've had, Rosanna, since uh, you first started running, first ran and what was it, kind of losing track of time, uh, 2019 in that first election. And... Um, how there was so much opposition to you, particularly in that first election, uh, and even in this one, uh, 
people just get all riled up. The Mel's, we talked about it. Bogoyevich, that whole gang from your neck of the woods. Has anyone on that side uh, ever reached out on our branch and said, you know what? You beat us. You're victorious. Uh, let us work with you. Uh, let us be of assistance to you. Has there ever been anything remotely resembling uh, that kind of uh, peaceful overture? Well, no, I, I have I will, I have only been an elder person under Lori Lightfoot. And, you know, our relationship was very oppositional from the first time that we met. So, no. <laughs> and if anything, you know, it was the opposite of it. Um, so definitely this is a huge change um, in terms of, of collaboration. Um, I think that there is a lot of space for us to be able to work with Brandon and to bring in our ideas and to find, um, you know, compromise. Um, but with Brandon, I don't feel like I have to accommodate to anybody. I'm, I'm going to bring as I am because before Mayor Brandon Johnson even announced that he was running, he seek our support. He talked to us. He wanted to hear what we wanted to do. And he was very open to the ideas that we were bringing and, and to the work that we have been doing in in city council. Because I, I, I'm not going to shy away from like, I, I have been in there for four years and I have been fighting for very specific things uh, with very specific plans and visions. And that's the the person that I was when I when I endorsed him and, and when I decided to fight to get him elected. Yeah, I was um, actually thinking along the lines of any. We'll move on from this topic, but just people on the right are always telling people on the left, you have to compromise, you have to move to the center. And I'm just trying to ever think, and I can't think of a moment when someone on the right reached out to someone on the left. It's just it's like a completely one way street and. I just cannot think of it right now. They can't get five votes in Congress, Rosanna, five votes to lift the debt ceiling. That's what it is. Five Republican votes, five moderates. You, all you need are five moderate congressmen. I have that in quotes. Republican congressmen who come from districts that voted for Joe Biden, Rosanna. You just need five of them and they can lift the debt. They can't get five of them. So I just I think it's a it's definitely a one way street off my chest all right <laughs> let's move on to one of the big issues that you said you really want to talk about we've been talking a lot about it on the show asylum seekers uh, coming to uh chicago and uh needing uh, housing to fit into our city let's talk about what's at stake and some of the challenges go ahead so i uh, it's been a it's been a really difficult few weeks for many of us who have decided that immigrants and asylum seekers are our business, that we are each other business, that that we should be able to help people get access to the basic needs that they have, that it is not okay for people to be sleeping on the floors of police stations. One thing that is evident through all of this and that we also saw during the pandemic is that we don't have structures of care. We defunded them all. We delegated everything on nonprofits and the government became sort of like a bank that would just give money away to nonprofits and delegate agencies in order to provide work that is not necessarily cohesive. Everybody's doing what everybody's doing. And then all of a sudden the government has this responsibility to care for all of these people at the same time, families, babies, 
you know, pregnant women. And we have nothing. We have police stations to send people to. That is all we have. Police stations. Because that is all we have invested in. So the only government facility that we can use to take people to while they wait for shelter is police stations because they're open 24 hours a day. So that has definitely put, you know, out there that the dire need that we have to fund public structures of care in government. And we have been saying this, I mean, I don't know how long I've been saying this for at this point. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of saying this, but in this particular moment, it has become so clear the lack of humanity of, of government, you know, the, the lack of preparedness that we have um, in order to be able to care for people. So in the absence of government structures, what's going to happen is that you're going to have communities that are going to organize themselves to be able to care for people. And what we have seen in my community, for example, is an enormous amount of volunteers that have put together this incredible mutual aid network. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I called in organizations in the community, groups of neighbors, individuals, everybody that was tending to asylum seekers in the 17th police district here in Albany Park. And I had over 60 people attend this meeting. And over there, everybody had an opportunity to share what they were doing. And then we unified the efforts so that we could be organized. And then immediately people got to work. And now we have one of the most sophisticated um, systems of mutual aid work that I've ever seen to be able to take care of every need that arises from medical needs to immigration, like legal advice, to uh, schools, to anything that they could need and that we can try to provide. And navigating this is hard because we don't really have resources, but people have been so, like the sense of solidarity. Um, and now one of the things that we really want to make sure that, that we get out of this is let's create a model of care for communities that is driven by community, but that is also funded by government through like real government positions that are developed for care, right? Because if we can have police everywhere, which is what we do, then we should be able to have a few care workers that go around community helping people in the things that people need. And in this particular context with the asylum seekers, there's so much coordination work to do because people want to help. Right now, there's like a waiting list of 300 people that are waiting to be called to volunteer. That is an enormous resource. And we are not tapping into that because government doesn't know how to do that. So it takes organizers to come into government to say, we have a whole community that wants to help. Let's bring them in and let's develop resources from government to make sure that we are able to sustain the efforts of community. So at this point, we have completely emptied the 17th district. We have been bringing people to churches in the community with pastors that are incredibly uh, friendly and, um, and, and very aware of the need to take care of people. So we have families living in churches. We have a respite center at Brands Park, and we are supporting all of those efforts together, right? Um, but it, it, it also speaks then to how can you support community in other ways? Because the migrants are here now but we have an incredibly big homeless population. So can we then step it up and start doing 
this kind of work from government <laughs> with the support of communities so that we can also house people, so that we can also make sure that we're case managing. Um, same with violence, for example. Like There is so much work that can be done that is already being taken on by communities, but that is not sustainable because there's no support from government. So, th so all of those things we're learning as we as we build these incredibly sophisticated uh, networks, the mutual aid networks. Uh, Byron in the 25th has been doing this work with his staff and they, they have a whole, um, they were able to get a whole warehouse and they have made it into a shelter that has been run by his office and community. Um, and then you think, well, so why can government do this? Okay, you need organizers to come in <laughs> and do this kind of work. And that's, that's what we are focusing on right now. But we are also thinking about how we can actually present a proposal, a very concrete proposal for this administration um, so that we can turn this into government programs, right? Well, you know, uh, listening to what you just said, and I've read articles about this as well, and the, uh, the, the vast numbers of people in the city who are stepping forward to help, uh, and people like you and Byron, stepping forward uh, to take some initiative. It, it strikes me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It strikes me that part of the reason why we have we struggle with this issue is because we've kind of bought in to the Republican rhetoric about asylum seekers. So follow me in this one, Rosanna. Like, I've never heard any person in a significant power in Illinois thank Gregory Abbott for this opportunity. Like we lost people in Chicago. We, our population fell. I believe it was pushed out by a whole lot of reasons, the whole bunch of reasons, but put that aside why it fell. Now we have 8,000, last number I saw, of asylum seekers. I never heard anybody say, thank you, Gregory Abbott. Your intentions are not noble. You're a mean-spirited, <laughs> evil human being, but we view these human beings as an opportunity. Thank you. We need people in Chicago. We need workers in Chicago. So let's put people to work in Chicago, building shelter for them. Let's, instead of spending money on Lincoln Yards, let's build shelters in all the vacant land. Renata, you know how much vacant land I can take you to drive in the city of Chicago? How much vacant land we have? Let's, let's build shelters for them. Let's put them into the economy. They're coming, looking for an opportunity. They're eager to work. I, I, I don't. It's so, I know when I say this, people will laugh at me because then you're so naive, you don't understand. But I'm like, why aren't we viewing this as an opportunity? Help me out, Rosanna. Um, I mean, I think that you're right and the, that there is some anti-immigrant sentiment um, that has been created, right, by um, racists. <laughs> um, I think that the, the more divided that, that we can be um the the least wins for the many we're gonna get right um if we start thinking about asylum seekers here and see them in the same light as every other marginalized community that we have in this city and and we use this like influx because you know i i think that right now we're seeing we're seeing so many people come in it turns into an emergency right because you have to, to care for so many people at the same time and you are not only talking about adults you're talking about babies you're talking about pregnant women you're talking about very vulnerable communities um, 
this puts you in a position in which you, if you don't have structures of care, you have to figure it out. Or you can be, you know, a really terrible <laughs> leader or a really terrible city or a really terrible state and turn people away. But we don't do that in Chicago, right? And we are a sanctuary city in Chicago. So those of us that are very committed to those values are going to have to step up because otherwise we're just, you know, it, it, it is it is not an option for me to not live up to those values. That is, that's just not going to happen, right? And and I know that many of my colleagues seem like think the same way, but also most of our communities think that way. So building um, those structures is, is completely urgent and necessary. That is not to say that there hasn't been protests. I think that there are sectors of the population that are very upset that people are here. But that is frame one in racism, but two, when it comes from other marginalized community in a sense of competition and scarcity, right? It is the idea that there's not enough for everybody. It's the idea that they're going to come here and they're going to take what the little that we have. And what we, just like you said, what we need to be thinking is this is an opportunity for us to build the infrastructure and, and all, of the, the, all of the care that we need to, to develop in order to have a healthy society. And let me tell you, people have stepped up and now it looks like we can take care of a lot of people. So let me tell you, like one experience that we had yesterday, there was a violent incident in my community where uh, this very young uh, kid who was 15 years old got, uh, got killed by gun violence. And uh, the mother was incredibly devastated and she went outside um, and slept at the site where her child was killed. Um, I went to sit with her and she was very agitated. It was, it was a really hard day. Um, I was there from 2 p.m. I think I went home around 8 p.m. Um, and in the process, a lot of people stopped by. Like at, at some point she fell asleep and I just stayed there just to make sure that she was safe. Um, other people came, people brought flowers. And, and at some point I, I brought a psychiatrist, a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist because she was on shock, right? So I wanted him to sit with her and talk to her to see what she needed. Does she need to be hospitalized? What, what kind of support do we need to provide for this mother? Because she was not leaving the site. And uh, she didn't want to go inside. So my friend sat with her for a while and then he came to me and he said, I think what she needs is community. I think what she needs is community support. I don't think that this needs to be medicalized right now. I think that she feels alone. And um, the the people that started stopping there, we sort of started planning like an impromptu vigil. Well, like if you come like a little later, come at 7.30, come outside. And people just started showing up. And then I started just texting people. Um, and by the end, we had a lot of people there with balloons and flowers and candles and you know the pastors uh, in the same churches that we have um asylum seekers and a lot of people from the mutual aid networks that are helping with asylum seekers started showing up and then all of a sudden you have a community that has been already activated to take care of each other and now it's just an extension of that care that we have determined that is so vital for human beings that are in precarious situations and we sat with this woman and at the end we convinced her to go inside 
and she went inside and we developed, you know, what were the next steps. There is a family in the community that works with survivors of gun violence. Uh, a, a woman who lost her child to gun violence six years ago, and now she supports other women and other families. And she was able to get her to come back to herself. And it was an incredible thing to witness, you know, when people come together. And now, you know, we're fundraising for the funeral cost of, of this person and making sure that we are able to um, to provide the the support that is going to be needed in the long term to then prevent more violence from happening, right? Um, and and a lot of this was also possible because we were already organizing to support asylum seekers. So people are already like on high alert, right? Like, where am I needed? Where do I have to show up? How, what do we need to do to take care of one another, right? And I think those are very important examples because it shows, you know, how you you know, professionalized care is something that is definitely needed, but we just need so much um, structures of care that are driven by community. We need each other. And yesterday was such a good reminder that you don't need to be a psychiatrist. You don't need to even be a social worker. You need to be a patient person that can sit with another human being and provide support. And that's what happened yesterday. At some point she came out and she was like, I thought that nobody cared. And look, everybody cares. This is a black woman that lost her child and the Mexican neighbor that lives in front bought flowers and created a whole memorial on a tree right next to where she was laying down for her child. All of the señoras, all of those señoras that live in the community like went by there. One brought a, um, a vase with water to put the flowers that have been just put on the ground because she wanted them to stay and to stay beautiful, right? Like small acts of solidarity in the face of pain and devastation. Um, and I think that as government, we need to nurture that. We need to make sure that people feel supported when they do those things. We need to organize that solidarity to make sure that we have those structures of care. And we haven't been doing that. So I'm just going to keep hammering this, Ben, like throughout the whole day. No, it doesn't matter what you ask me. I'm just going to come to you. <laughs> I'm going to come back to this. <laughs> uh, that's fine. Uh, I, I, I'll follow up on it a little bit. Um, and we'll get into what you mean by structures of care. Uh, the loss, the murder of a 15-year-old is, is so unimaginably devastating and traumatic. And I don't think anybody can conjure up the amount of pain and trauma that a mother is dealing with. And it's really important what you just described, uh, that initial response from the community of reaching out but then there's an ongoing process. You, I don't think anybody ever heals from something as, as god-awful wrenching as that. But you start, you have to go through the process as much as you can. And that's where our city as a whole steps in. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you and I have been talking about treatment on trauma for four years now, you know? Uh, and before I was having a conversation with you, I was having a conversation with mental health activists talking about the impact of closing clinics in high crime areas where people are dealing with the trauma of, of murder, senseless murder. And 
I absolutely think that our city has to, if we're going to move forward as a civilized place that isn't filled with hatred uh, and violence, set up a way to help people as best we can heal from this kind of trauma and this kind of violence. I believe that's what this movement has been all about for the last 10 years. And it seems, Rosanna, it's been on deaf ears for the most part, for the powers that be in town. Do you agree with me on that point? So I think there are several ways to do structures of care from government. And I think one of them is to look at the efforts that are already happening in communities and hire the people that are already working in the community, that understand the context of the community and that are leading those efforts and then hire them and give them good government jobs to make sure that they are being able to support those community efforts, to be liaisons with other government institutions, to broker relationships with community institutions, because right now I do that, but I can't spend all my time doing that. And whenever I, you know, I am pulled in, whenever there are all of these needs, it's really hard to be just one person that is brokering all of the relationships, right? Um, So once you have a group of community workers, and I would call them community care workers, um, you can do a lot of that coordination work, a lot of that liaison work, um, and get and get institutional power in the space where community operates, right? And that's severely needed because a lot of the people that are volunteer right now, they have full-time jobs. They are doing this in their free time, right? So we need people that are dedicated to make sure that the most important coordination happens, that people that want to help can find the outlets to help. They know how to help, that they can be trained to help in ways that actually are good for the community. And then I would say that the other part of it is uh, making sure that we're expanding the structures of care that we do have. And one example of that is the public mental health centers, right? So the, so the mental health centers uh, were like, you know, brick and mortar clinics where you would go and you would get therapy. What we are envisioning is places where you can get way more than that, right? And that they are open when people need them because you have the police stations open 24 hours a day because it's a public safety concern, right? Well, people need care at all times of the day too. <laughs> like the, the need for care doesn't stop after 5 p.m. or after 4 p.m. And care can look so different, you know, depending of, of context. Yes, there might be people that are in crisis and might need uh, therapy at that point, but there are people that need a shower. And that's what they need. There are people that might need to sit down and have a meal or be in a quiet room uh, or be connected with some sort of other service. And these are things that we can provide. So walking crisis centers that are open 24 hours a day, or you can call them stabilization centers, is the opposite of the police station, right? Let the police deal with whatever it is that the police need to deal with. It's not care. Police is not developed to care for community. We're forcing them to do that right now by sending asylum seekers to to the police station, but that is not what it is designed for. So let's create spaces where people can actually go and have their 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 needs met and then let's have a core like I, I imagine it as a community care core 
where you can actually have people in each ward that are responsible for coordinating support efforts for people and wheeling in community, in the community initiatives that are already there, on the nonprofits that are already there, on the government institutions that are already there. But right now there's no cohesion between any of these things. So whoever jumps in, jumps in. And if you don't jump in, you don't jump in. Um, we can actually do this work together and support what communities are already doing, but with like a, a, a very intentional core of people that are paid by government to, to be able to make it sustainable. Uh, to, and to that point about uh, expanding these uh, services, uh, I think it was last week, a lot of us uh, lefties got a shock when the, when the mayor's deputy chief gave an interview with WBEZ and said, well, they're, they haven't signed on to uh, reopening the clinics. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> a lot of us lefties really were upset by that. Uh, and Mayor uh, Johnson, in his inaugural address, made a point of saying he will open the clinics. He said that uh, so we weren't studying. He didn't say we're going to study the matter. No, he said we're reopening the clinics. Uh, and I, with, think, I think that the deputy chief of staff, I think that what Christina was trying to get at is that we are trying to figure out how to do these things, that we have to be able to understand the lay of the land first. Uh, but, there, you know, there is something to say about, like, how we say things. And I think that she was being careful about what can be promised, you know, um, uh, it, it, mostly in terms of timeline, because I think that people and particularly movement have been waiting for so long to be heard. And a lot of us don't, we have somebody that actually hear us and that ran on our platforms and we're like, okay, well, I want it now. Right. And it's, it's, it's going to take us a little bit of time and we have to like understand that it is going to take a little bit of time. But we need we need to make sure that the direction that we know that we are walking in that direction at every point, right? That we are taking steps to be able to get to where we need to be. All right. Uh, so let's talk about uh, your new role. You will be the chair of the health um, committee in the Chicago City Council. Uh, I can't think of any initiative, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm being unfair to your colleagues of significance that's come out of the health committee of the Chicago City Council over the last 10 years or so. Uh, how are things going to be different uh, with <laughs> Chair Rosanna Rodriguez? Go ahead. I, I think that I live the frustration of not being able to even discuss legislation in that committee, and it really affected me. But what happens when you don't listen to your colleagues and when you don't discuss legislation, if you have smart people in a committee, is that they're gonna go and they're going to organize it outside of your committee. They're going to organize it with the neighbors and then they're gonna run on those platforms against you and you're gonna lose your seat. That's what happens. And I know how that happens because I did it. <laughs> so I think that it's going to be really important to open space for discussions. I think it's very important that the things that particularly Mayor Brandon Johnson ran on as it relates to health, such as treatment, not trauma, that we have a lot of engagement and that we are able to have hearings um, to, to pass legislation that benefits our communities. So I'm ready to have, I'm, I'm ready to have hearings. <laughs> I am ready to open the space. And I, I also think that our committees can be um, way more than they are right now. And I imagine the Committee on Health as also a place of education uh, for our communities. Um, I think that our committee can model community engagement. I think that 
the processes of passing legislation are so obscure and people feel so removed from how government works. And we want to change that. We want people to know where a specific legislation is. We want people to know how they can provide public comment. We want them to be able to understand legislation in simple terms, right? So I I would I envision my committee as a place where people can get to all of that. I want to create a website where people can um uh, where people can come and find things very easily. Um, and, and I want to provide a lot of room for people to, to participate and for my colleagues to propose legislation because this is what we are supposed to be here for. How, how uh, many meetings a month or a year do you envision? Uh, I, have, I have no idea, but one thing I can say, when I first got elected to city council, I was really trying to understand how committees worked because for example the committee on rules one of your colleagues would send your stuff to rules and you say so when are we going to see it and the chair would say well you need to write me a letter with 26 signatures <laughs> you're like well so i already have to have it passed in the council floor in order to get a hearing or to just get it out of committee and send it to committee right so at least once a month you need to meet in order to look at whatever legislation has been introduced um, and I mean, that's, that's basic. That's the floor, right? Like we should at least be meeting once a month to be able to look at whatever has been introduced. Um, and then of course, because the health committee and particularly after the pandemic was such an active space, I think that we just need to be, you know, updating people on the, all of the initiatives that we have, um, there is so much to talk about in the city of Chicago around efforts that we have around a lot of different things. Um, so I, I want to have lots of hearings. The The thing also is that we are responsible for our committees and we're still responsible for our wards, right? Like I have to continue doing ward night. I have to continue walking the blocks. I have to continue engaging with businesses in my ward. So it's a lot, it's a lot of work that you have to balance. Um, I'm ready for it though. I, I am ready for it. Um, but I am really excited to be able to discuss legislation and pass meaningful legislation that is going to impact the lives of everybody in the city. Uh, and uh, finally, many times you've come on the show and we've we've actually like we've had a good laugh at some of the antics of the city council. Uh, and, and you've joined in with me as I, you know, I compare them to high school kids and uh, and your good friend Carlos, when before you came aboard, you know, he was like the sole voice of the lefties for a while and they, they would like taunt him and stuff. It was very kind of a childish, almost like a frat fraternal frat scene or something like that uh or like a pickup bar in uh, wrigleyville or something on a, <laughs> on a thursday night you know or whatever uh what what do you think it's going to be like going forward you have all these new uh alders coming in uh either you've got the lefties or progressives or whatever you call it in charge of a lot of committees thanks to the latest reorganization effort which carlos swears up and down they got the votes to pass um, so what do you, what's your kind of sense of, uh, how people are going to treat each other, uh, in the, uh, forthcoming city council? I think that because of the massive change that we have seen in the city council and, and the change in mayoral leadership as well, I think the tone is going to be very different. I think, um, very, very, it's very different from how it was before where people came and they knew that they just needed to do whatever the mayor said 
and then get whatever they needed for their for their communities. And they will tell you, like some of my colleagues just say that very openly. You do what the mayor tells you to do. You you're not supposed to have ideas. <laughs> The mayor has the ideas. You go with his ideas, and then they will give you whatever you want for your for your community, so that you can get reelected. That is not the people that came in. You know, the people that came into city council are incredibly smart, intentional people with big ideas, with backgrounds in organizing, and I think that that is completely going to change the tone of 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 the discussion and the rhetoric on the floor. To I have heard like some discussions in city council that I want to cry. I'm like, how is it possible that this is what people are staring? And I think that as new people come in with all of these incredible backgrounds in so many different areas, um, the conversation is going to be richer, is going to be deeper, is going to be way more evidence-based, which I am starving for in city council because people talking there like, like whatever, like, oh, you don't know how to raise children. I knew where my children were always when I was, when my children were growing up and you're like, okay. <laughs> so I, I think, I think that, um, I think that the, the tone is going to be very different. I think it's going to be way more collaborative as well. I think that, that the days of, um, of, of feeling like you needed to walk on eggshells and I think that's over. Um, I, I, at least that's how I feel right now. Well, I hope uh, we have moved beyond that because, I mean, I laughed at most of it because you had to laugh to keep from crying some of the stupid stuff that Alderman would say to all other Aldermen. I remember <laughs> uh, uh, Susan Hedlowski Garza telling me that when she first came in, this is before you got in there, uh, she would wear red on council days uh, because she's a proud member of the Chicago Teachers Union, big ally of Karen Lewis. She owes her uh, election to the CTU and the alliance they built. It was a very close election. So as solidarity, she would wear red. And other aldermen, particularly one I'm thinking of, would make fun of her for wearing red. I'm like, you're making fun of how someone's dressed? What are you, a baby? What are you, like nine? What are you? grow up it's very common it's very common it's very common also for aldermen to be very um particularly the men um it is very common for me to be sexually harassed in city council because they don't they don't understand like there's so many things that it feels like they don't understand like it's like me too like past them like over the head and they never actually thought that they needed to sort of be mindful on how they talk to people <laughs> you know like I have an alderman that used to call me like the spicy alderman like and he would just say that to me like in my face right like oh you're she's Puerto Rican and it, you have to like navigate all of these things like what is this like do these people ever like hear themselves does anybody ever like just Tell them, you know, you're an elected official. You should probably, like, <laughs> act accordingly. Um, so it, it has been really tough to be in there, but I think that the culture is going to change dramatically uh, because of the new people that are in and because of Brandon. Wow. So what – I never you never told me that before. <laughs> There's so much. That I, I'm saving some stuff for my book. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you everything. everything. Got to save it for the book, otherwise people won't buy it. Okay, Ben, get with it. Uh, uh, now for, for the rest of the week, I'm going to be trying to guess who that alderman was. Oh my God, I'll tell you because he's still in there. He's still in. Okay, we reduced it down. I think what I'll call her up, ladies and gentlemen, one night when I'm taking one of my famous walks. Come on, just tell me, okay, off the record. 
That's uh, I bug Rosanna all the time about eight o'clock. Rosanna, you there? <laughs> <laughs> On my famous walks. Uh, uh, I want to close by saying I'll be in the 33rd Ward on June 6th with my uh, partner in crime, Maya Dukmasova. Cam Buckner will be there. Uh, that is uh, at Nighthawks, which is uh, right there at Kimball and Lawrence. Uh, we'll be doing a first Tuesday talking about the CTA. Linda Lopez will be another guest. Uh, you know, the future of the CTA, crime in the CTA, budgeting of the CTA. Can, can the it's CTA right next to the Kimball Brown line? So, you yeah. know, when I come, just come. The Kimball Brown line is like right across the street. So you can take the Brown line to to come join us at Nighthawk. Absolutely. Just take that Brown line. And then as you walk down, take a look at Roosevelt High School, the Rough Riders. Woo. Go Rough Riders. All right. Uh, right down the street from it. And so uh, thank you for welcoming us to your ward. And oh, when, when people come in, if they look at Roosevelt High School, they are going to see the new turf field that we are creating with some TIF money that should belong to schools anyways. But I got $5.8 million from a TIF to create a turf field for Roosevelt High School, which is 100 years old and has never had a home game. But they are going to have a home game uh, come the fall, and I'm really excited about it. Wait, time out. Uh, a home game for football or a home game for soccer? soccer? Yeah, soccer. soccer okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. They're very excited. No, no. They used to, I know they used to play their games over at River Park. They never had a home field. Roosevelt would be playing soccer games. Uh, where is that? What is that? Foster. I think it's on Foster uh, and just east of Pulaski. If I'm doing it in my it's mind. It's a mystery why the Mouse never gave Roosevelt anything like that, but we're done with that, so now we're going to have a turf field. <laughs> the Mouse and Blago are done in the 33rd Ward. I think they may still live there. No nope. oh, Blago. They don't. <laughs> they don't live in the 33rd anymore. Oh, wow. They don't even live there anymore. Uh, they sure love getting involved in elections, though. <laughs> All right, Rosanna, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been so supportive all the time whenever I bug you at 8 in the night to come on my show. And I look forward to seeing you on June 6th, all right? Yes, I'll see you there. I'll see everybody there because everybody's coming. Yes. <laughs> everybody, who, everybody who's anybody will be there. All right, that's the great Rosanna Rodriguez. And I'm Ben Jarofsky. I also want to thank producer Chris for doing such a great job. And he's going to smooth out this show, Rosanna. Nobody will know anything about the technical difficulties we had. It'll be our little secret. Uh, so, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Another action-packed Ben Jarofsky show in the books. And don't forget, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram at Benny J Show or all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.